Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Motorsport Magazine podcast, and today is a really good one. I'll tell you who it is in just a moment. But first, I must tell you about our subscription offer this month. And the offers are from $49.99, that's for one year, obviously. Motorsport Magazine, through your door, every month for a year. And when you take out a one-year subscription, you get a free motorsport binder to house all those beautiful magazines. That's what it says here. And if you get a two-year subscription, yep, you guessed it, you get two motorsport binders to bind all the magazines together. So go for it, 49.99, it's a good price. If you want to take up this offer, go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash bin P13. That's motorsportmagazine.com forward slash bin P13. Or you can call us on 0207-349-8472. 0207-349-8472. Right. Well, Alan McNish is in the building. Famous broadcaster, racing driver, and leading the WEC championship with three races to go. Hmm. This is a good year, isn't it? You're, ge- you're getting better and better like a bottle of wine, aren't you? Yeah, maybe a bottle of whiskey. A good old 12-year-old or something, 18-year-old. <laughs> But it certainly has been a, a pretty successful year, there's no question about it. And it's been good racing as well. The racing's been tough from the start to the finish. But, you know, as you said, there's three races to go. And uh, everybody else is very keen to make sure that uh, they're the ones that are champions at the end of the season. Absolutely. I hope they are, yes. Anyway. Well, I hope they're not. I hope we're the champions. Greg, <laughs> uh, that's what we're fighting for. But it's, it's close. It's nip and tuck. And, uh, you know, we've got... Japan in a couple of weeks' time, then we've got uh, China, and then to Bahrain for the final race, which is on the 30th of November. Fantastic. Now, um, you are also going to be the guest editor of this magazine, Motorsport magazine. Are you looking forward to that? Well, can I tell you, it's actually a bit more nerve-wracking than thinking about the last three rounds of the season. Um, I've always wondered what actually goes into all of this because obviously I've read magazines since I was a wee boy and uh, (coughs) looking for different articles and the people around about this table have been writing uh, good and bad things about me, hopefully more good than bad throughout my career. But now I think I'm in charge, so I suppose from my point of view I can make you write whatever I want. Is that the way it works? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, excellent. (laughs) I like this idea. The main thing to remember is drink lots of coffee. 
spend half the morning chatting and then, then maybe get around to doing something in the afternoon. That's the general way it works. Half the morning? Half the morning. Oh God, that's about 50% more work than a racing driver. <laughs> I'm not so sure about this. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, um, what I'd like to do is come to Japan with you and write nice things about you. Can I do that? There's no problem at all. You're considering oh, yes. You're I considering. know that's easy stuff. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Um, Look, finally from me, because we must get round the table, because we have Nigel Roback here, our editor-in-chief. We have Simon Aaron with us, our travelling man, and our editor himself, Damien Smith, who's just back from the United States. Anyway, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, Porsche coming back next year. Um, we're all very excited about this, are you? Because you were the last man to win for Porsche. Yes, that was back in 1998 at Le Mans. And uh, it was quite funny, really, because the were supposed to then continue the program in 99 and then in 2000 and we designed and developed a car that ran just at the end of 1999 and that was going to be a head-to-head -head with Audi but ultimately the program got cancelled completely and it's taken 15 years for them to get back to that position so it's excellent news that they're back in top-line motorsport and uh, to come back at a time when the two sort of sister companies are going to be fighting against each other. It's quite a sort of mouth-watering prospect. But to me, the paddock can only gain out of it, but I think the fans are really going to gain out of it because without doubt they're going to come in and they're going to fight to win. And uh, with Toyota, with Audi and with Porsche, there is three major manufacturers with probably three cars each fighting at the front of Le Mans WEC, I think. So it's a pretty good prospect. It is, I agree. It's fantastic, isn't it? Alan, what do you expect their driver lineup to be? Well, obviously they've got four signed at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've got two of their historic drivers in Timo Bernard and Roman Dumas, who we've raced against, yeah. but also raced with because they were with us for a couple of years at Audi. And uh, they know the game very well. Mark Webber is the big name signing. And I think that was a statement of intent, that they're not just there to sort of learn and develop and do things slowly. They want to come in and do it quick and hard. Mm. And Mark's up for this. Mm. Um, yeah, he's yeah. definitely up for it. Yeah. Now, sports cars has moved a lot since he left back in 98 when he was with Mercedes. But then again, in principle, I would have said they've probably aligned themselves more in terms of the way you drive, the way you race, the speed and everything else, more to Formula One than they ever have been. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think there'll be a transition problem. Neil Yanni's a guy that's coming through. And uh, Neil's now got some good experience. You know, you know him from A1 Grand Prix when he dominated and things like that. So. I think he's uh, got good strength and a good future. Yeah. The last two places, because they will run two cars next year, mm -hmm. so that's three drivers each car, so six total. The last two places I would expect they will go for certainly someone out of their Porsche system, because Porsche's always been a manufacturer that's looked to their Carrera Cup and junior categories and GT to bring drivers forward and give them a sort of staircase, if you like. And so I fully expect one, maybe two of those guys to sort of take it up. Mm. But I think it'll be another month or two before we get the full sort of lineup. To me, though, it'll be Bernard, Dumas and Weber in one car and then whoever makes up the second one. Yeah. I think that's what be how it goes. How does it work politically? Because Audi and Porsche both come under the same umbrella, sort of, with Volkswagen as a parent yeah. company. I mean, will you have completely free reign to you know, knock, knock spots off each other if necessary? I mean, how, yeah. how, I mean is, is, are, are there any kind of corporate instructions? No. At the moment, there is absolutely zero. Uh, there's obviously dialogue between the two companies, as there is dialogue 
with Toyota as well about certain things, regulations with the ACO and the FIA. But beyond that, it's a separated programme. Um, it's a programme that we know a little bit about, but more gossip than anything else. We haven't sort of got any official on their engine uh, size, the way they're working it with their hybrid systems or anything else. It's what we saw in the press was kind of what you guys saw, nothing else. We didn't know any more than that. So uh, obviously we know some of the people that were there because uh, the head of motorsport and uh, the actual head of R&D for Porsche for the car side is a guy called Wolfgang Hatz and Hatz was at Audi for a long time and so he certainly knows how the Audi systems work and vice versa you know there's been people that have slid across to us but you know now we're forging ahead with the different programs we're from Weissach and we're from Ingolstadt and there'll be a, a good old German ruck when it comes to the first race I'm sure. And Toyota's from Cologne. Well, yeah, they, yeah, they want to be German. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny with the mentalities, though, because there's huge mentality differences between companies from different countries. You know, I remember Peugeot were full Latin, go after it full speed, and then try to make it to the end, whereas Toy uh, Audi, I would have said, was a bit more pragmatic, you know, make sure it's reliable, then build speed into it. Um, but when you get Cologne, you get Ingolstadt, and you get you know, Weissach, that's three sort of separate parts of Germany and they have got a different mentality towards things mm. and so it's going to be quite interesting to see how that all evolves, even, yeah. though, even though they're international companies. Yeah. Are you, are you expecting Porsche to be right there from, yeah. from the off? On speed, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think on speed it's quite clear they've hired people that know how to design very fast racing cars and with Formula One experience. So they're going in that side of things. Yeah. Um, also the personnel behind the team and things are very good at setting things up. A lot of them came from BMW, both in Formula One and DTM. Yeah. And so therefore I think they've definitely gone down an attacking attitude line. Where it will be tough, because it's tough for everybody, is to try to get reliability at that speed mm. for the long period. So I wouldn't say for a six-hour race in WEC, but I think for a 24-hour race at Le Mans, yeah. then that will be a tough nut to crack. Yeah. And uh, we saw that with Peugeot when they first came in. We saw it with Toyota when they first came in. And bluntly, Audi's been doing this a long time now. Mm. And they know how to win that race. They've got an 80% strike rate at Le Mans. And so therefore, anybody that beats them has got to do a bloody good job. Mm. However, you know, you have to also look back at the heritage of Porsche and you've got to say that they've got a pretty good strike rate at Le Mans as well. <laughs> and they're coming in with a, a mentality that they want to win the race yeah. because they want to, you know, be back in top form. Yeah. So. Yeah. Would, they, would they draw the line at poaching drivers from Audi? Uh, so far, we haven't really seen any sort of thoughts on that. I think the, you know, the Audi drivers are quite happy and comfortable where they are. And, um, you know, and I suppose from my point of view, I'm the closest link to that because of having been the last one, apart from Roman and Timo. But when they were with us, they were still contracted to Porsche principally. They were kind of loaned out. Um, but as soon as Porsche announced their plans, then that ceased straight away. Mm. And so I think as much as there's uh, obviously people would have thoughts about that but uh, in reality I think that if you're sitting with an Audi contract right now you're d looking pretty good in terms of your performance and capability. 
Um, if you're not sitting with one, then obviously I would say Porsche is a pretty prime seat. Is that th that's a no? I haven't had the phone call. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a nice cup of tea, mate. <laughs> a wee bit more sugar in it next time. Okay. Um, like Formula One, sports car racing has a new rule book for next year. Mm. So is it uh, the same sort of thing where it's a clean sheet of paper, or is there? Do you think it's not quite as clear cut as that? Or it's not quite as clear-cut. We've got a little bit more experience of what we're going to need next year than, say, Formula One does. In terms of uh, aerodynamics and things, it's slightly changed. We've got a slightly narrower car, but in principle, it's kind of similar. What is happening with uh, the regulations it's a, for the power source? Effectively, you've got an amount of energy, and so therefore you can uh, have different makeups of that between your fuel source, like fossil fuel, say for us with diesel as it is this year, and uh, then a hybrid system attached to it. And you can have a ratio where you have a bigger hybrid system and a smaller engine, or smaller engine, bigger hybrid. Now, Formula One, and you might be able to correct me here, uh, they have got 400 kilojoules per lap of maximum energy that's allowed. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, in Brazil, for example, we had 2,500 megajoules. So we've got a significant amount more of hybrid energy available to us per lap than Formula One does. So therefore, we're kind of closer to where the maximum, and the maximum's eight megajoules yeah. of energy per lap, which is still quite a difference from 2,500 kilojoules, you know, 2.5 megajoules, but it's still a lot closer than 400 kilojoules as to what they will require for Formula One. So I think in principle, we've got probably a better view into what we will need because we've, we're halfway there anyway. But there is still that big push towards efficiency and performance is not necessarily going to be defined by the guys that are fastest over one lap. Um, they are defined by the guys that go as fastest from the start lights to the checkered flag. And to some extent, the race we had in the States was a pretty good indication of that with the way that the strategies between us at Audi were a second a lap faster than Toyota and uh, the fact that they were double stinting their tyres and they were also uh, able to go one or two laps longer on a tank of fuel than us. And so therefore, uh, you know, I think we see those strategy games being played a little bit more often than they do in Formula One. Yeah. But next season, of course, it, that, it will be much more the case in Formula One, won't it? Because they will have a lot more energy next year. So we may see more of that sports car type um, one thing I sincerely hope they do, though, is they can drive hard. Because that's the one thing that frustrated me a lot through the middle part of this year. Was yeah, when sure. you know, the drivers were basically driving fast for qualifying lap and then six, seven seconds off trying to make sure they were able to conserve things. Um, I would hope whatever they come up with, you have got strategy, which I think is quite exciting because it throws different elements into it, but you've got drivers that are able to actually push the cars and uh, push them as we're designed and DNA wired to do, not uh, just to drive around at half speed. But they'll have smaller fuel tanks, as a couple well, with more. Look, there's nothing wrong with that. I think in terms of the, the concept side of things, to me, Looking back at my sports car career, if I take it that way, when I started at Le Mans, we had, I think, 110 or 120 litres size fuel tank. Now we've got 58, but we're doing more miles over the course of the whole race than we did then. So we've got a lot less straight line speed, probably 
20 miles an hour less straight line speed, but we're 20 seconds a lap faster yeah, per lap. And so therefore it has gone in an efficiency that's way. That's incredible, isn't it? And it's, yeah. you know, the technology's allowed for it now. You know, you could downsize the engine size, get better weight distribution, get better efficiency out of the aerodynamics, all of these sort of things. Never mind with, um, you know, a hybrid system being able to also add into that mix. And so I think this whole push for efficiency is a very good thing. And I think motorsport has to personally take the leading role in it, not be forced into it by other factors and people lobbying for it. I think they've got to sort of grab it themselves, which Formula One now has done, um, probably a little bit later than some would have liked, but it has grabbed a hold of it. Drag screaming into it as well. Well, I remember Max, after in 2006, Max Mosley, after the first diesel victory at Sebring, mm -hmm. uh, two weeks later stood up and said Formula One's got to be much more environmental, much more efficient. It can't just go on, you know, burning the way it has done. And it's taken, you know, a few years and a few years post Max Mosley for that to happen, but they're there and they're but, moving. But even now Bernie wants to, you know, Bernie given a free hand would stay with the V8s. Yeah. I don't think he's... The green, the green aspects of racing appear not to appeal to him terribly strongly. I think that you have got a very unique animal in Bernie, and he's looking at it from one side. Yeah. Um, I would say that there is a, there's always two sides to an argument. The, the question I've got is not necessarily us, because I remember going in 1980, now let me get this year right, 1989 going to Silverstone, and uh, Senna was testing there with the McLaren mm -hmm. and hearing that thing screaming down the back straight and getting a tingle down your spine yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with a V10 that was just sounded so beautiful yeah. and I went with my son at the weekend to Paul Rickard for the ELMS race yep. and the first thing he did was when we got out of the car was put on his his ear defenders he said oh this is really noisy dad <laughs> when he, and so you know, I remember this noise and everything else with such passion, mm -hmm. and he thinks it's bloody noisy and he doesn't mm -hmm. like it, and he wants his ear defenders on. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the, what's he going to do in five or eight years' time? Yeah, that's true. And he's the one that's going to be the future of mm -hmm. buying the tickets, sure. watching from the grandstands, taking his family, buying the cars, whatever it may be. Sure. And I think now we've got to prepare for them and their generation, not for our generation, because bluntly, we're getting old and we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're not the future. No, we're no, the no. now and will be the past. And it's, uh, <coughs> There'll be a crossover. There'll be a crossover. I think the crossover's because, here. Cause, cause, you know, because by then I won't want to go because I'm, I don't want to hear silent racing cars. You know, it's, but, so you're going to you'll pull in new fans and you'll lose... The you'll probably thing, lose traditionalists. The silent thing mm. I've, I've found, the, the, the strength of Le Mans is the diversity. Yeah, that you can have, yeah. you know, in the, in, the, in the Peugeot days, I remember watching the first lap in, I think it was 09, and you, so you had the Audis and the Peugeots come through and eerily no noise, mm. and then suddenly you'd get the, uh, the V12 Astons come through and you had this, mm. this great yeah, sound yeah. of noise. Yeah. And it was, I just found it interesting that you got the, the two together. And that's where the strength well, of sports I mean, is. I, I remember the year I started. I mean, at, at uh, a couple of races, Lotus were running a turbine, mm. and Emerson drove it actually at Monza. Yeah. Um, and that was, I mean, that was silent. That was that was the most extraordinary thing when it came past the pits at Monza. It was just shh, like that, and you could actually hear the brakes going on. And you, you know, you could. Yeah. 
but, it's but that was great because it but but because it was a one-off it was it was it was this car and sort of it was it was a novelty yeah. but i thought i wouldn't want to listen to 25 of these no. one thing though this week mallory park has gone into administration partly because of their arguments with the council yeah. because of noise and the restriction of the number of days that they could have sure. events yeah. and it, it went down to two out of five days or so two out of whatever so the crux is we've had problems at Croft, we've got problems at Mallory Park. Mm. Brands Hatch has always had problems on school days and things like that. And that's only going to get worse. Yeah. And I do think that there's an element that that side of things we have to take into account because the, there's not much point having motor racing if you've got no tracks to go to. Yeah. And so therefore there is a wee element to that and I think that'll start in karting before it actually starts in car racing where I think you'll see electric karting in the next five years. But I think that's something that is coming and we cannot control it. We're just going to have to adapt to it. And, uh, it's strange actually that you, when you're saying about tracks and noise in Oris, and it, as you're right it is only going to get worse. But it's strange that, that there's a sort of intolerance, a growing intolerance of that. And yet every single television programme, you are just bombarded with music. Yep. Whether it fits or not. Uh, you know, you can't watch any, f any put, put TV on and watch, watch Formula One. You have this constant, loud music. But of course that's in private, whereas what we're... And, th and that doesn't, to me, it doesn't, half the time doesn't fit. And I think, what the hell do we have to have this? Can we just go back on to... Um, and Mallory Park's the first place I saw you racing a car, your Van Diemen, in 86. 87. 87, 80, it was not that old. It was an RF86 in 87, sorry, I do apologise, I do apologise. Yeah. Um, with all the technology that the sport's now embraced, is that, I mean, when you were in your Van Diemen RF86 in 1987, the wheel in the car just steered, did nothing else. It didn't steer, that was a problem. <laughs> but um, nowadays, you know, you've got all the hybrid systems. Is driving still a completely natural process when you've got, you know, 3,000 buttons on the steering wheel and everything else? Or, is, is, is it the same natural process that it, that it felt all those years ago? It's totally different, but the principles are the same in the basic principles. You know, now on that steering wheel was literally just a steering wheel. Or the first time I drove a Formula One car in 89, it had two buttons. One to change the display page, which I think had three pieces of information you could scroll between them. And the other one was a radio button that if you pressed it too hard, fell off. <laughs> and now on the Audi wheel, I've got, there's a hundred parameters I can change on the steering wheel. That's amazing. And we are actively changing those and we're actively getting information to change them to improve the performance and maximise the performance of the car. Now those systems and traction control is the one that comes up most is deemed to be bad you know it's a driver leveller and things like that. I would say all it does is change what the driver has to do. I think the good guys always get to the top and I think all it does is just change that dynamic a little bit because the laws of physics are the same. You still have to sort of know where they are and you've got to sort of throw it into the corner and get to the point of that grip and keep it there all the way through the corner. Not go to 100% and then drop to 80 and back up to 100 and 110. And uh, that being able to do that every lap is a skill, whether it's got traction control hybrid systems or it's a RF86 in 1987. The thing I struggled with, funnily enough, in that car was downshifting, because I didn't heel and toe. 
All I did was brake and crash it through the gearbox. The well, it's possibly that, or possibly nobody had actually told me I had to do that. <laughs> and so I didn't learn to heel and toe until I blew the gearbox in a Formula One car a few years later. So I did all my junior career just mashing the brake pedal and crashing it through. And uh, then I realised actually I had, you know, dog rings were actually not looking very good when they came out, so I had to then learn. But uh, coming back to it, I think the basic of a racing driver, the instinctive point that you were saying, that should consume a small part of his brain energy when he's driving. And the rest is, con is thinking about how to maximise the performance. What's happening with the strategy? Is the tyre going? Being able to download that data to the engineer in a format he can understand later on. But the actual driving of the car should be second nature, whether it's in 87 at Mallory or in 2013 at the Circuit of the Americas. And I think the good guys are the ones that actually use less of their brain power in driving and have more to play with other things. And Michael probably is one of the best of that with his, I think, historically with his ability to, and Senna as well, because of the lack of data then, to be able to drive as a second nature and uh, just the, the rest of setup and working with the car and working with the team to improve performance and being able to communicate it. Alan, do you know do you know of any drivers who actually find this process difficult in the sense that they might be great drivers, but they find it difficult to cope with the amount of information they're receiving and the amount of jobs they have to do as a result of receiving that? It gets to a saturation point because certainly we define points on the circuit where we want the engineers to talk to oh us. Right, okay. And uh, if it's something immediate, you know, it's critical then they'll come over the radio. But we've got lots of information going on. We've got the engineer talking to yeah, us uh, at certain points. We've got a spotter, basically, because one thing about an LMP1 car is that vision's not mm. its best quality by the current regulations. And so we've got a spotter telling us where incidents are. And you can be firing through, a, you know, like say, store through Beckett's at Silverstone and have the spotter saying, you know, turn one car on outside, stay inside, uh, which doesn't relate to you at that moment in time, but you're fighting for position. They have to give the information instantaneously. They can't wait because they're doing it for two cars. But, uh, you know, there, there is a point where you do have to be able to basically pause it, the information, and then replay it to yourself down the next straight. Because if not, you lose lap time. And that's a critical thing, is not to lose lap time. I think as well for the engineers, because we think of them sitting on a pit wall just looking at a piece of data. They're getting so much information from different areas on the radio and also that for them, they get to a saturation point as well. You know, you just think of driving flat out home tonight and having a satellite navigation system telling you where to go, plus also have the radio on, plus also have someone trying to squeeze you in towards the curb because they want to go around the outside. And you know, you're trying to process these things. Again, comes back to it. If you use less of your brain power to drive the car naturally, then you've got more brain power to be able to sure. absorb all of that other information and process it. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's an, it, an interesting to get that insight into exactly what it's like. I don't think a lot of people... I mean, might there come a point where you could race these cars without a driver? I think designers want that. I don't think the public do, and drivers isn't definitely that, Isn't don't. that called scale electric? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's called simulation, and simulation isn't that exciting. You know, to see simulation uh, replayed no, sure. you know, 20 times a year, I don't think we'd no, no, get the I fan base Formula 1 I does. I wasn't advocating but it. No, I, I, 
I don't think so, uh, because the human element is a big part of it, and the hu human element can make the difference. I do think that it is getting to the point where you have to take in more and more information, and there's more and more technology available to the teams, and they, they physically could be able to do it if it was what they wanted to do. I think technology is there to be able to achieve it in one way or another. But I don't think we would necessarily want to watch it. No, no, definitely not. It's like you want a pilot in your Airbus, don't you, really? Uh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. When somebody says there's a good flight, I always reply to them, it's actually the pilot I'd like to have a really good flight. <laughs> I'm just a passenger in this one. Me too. I agree. <laughs> Alan, one of the things that um, I think I'm really enjoying about sports car racing and people are in general at the moment is uh, not only is there diversity and there's strategy battles and we don't know what's going to happen until the last hour of a six-hour race more often than not, but it's also the wheel-to-wheel -wheel stuff between you guys. There's no quarter given. Um, it's harder than Formula One in that sense, uh, as we were saying earlier with the, the way that Formula One drivers w were earlier in the season having to drive to a, yeah. to a pace. What's it like being in the middle of it at the moment? It's fun. It's really, really fun. You know, the, we're racing drivers and you want to race hard, you want to have close competition, but when you've had to work really hard to overtake somebody, then it makes it quite satisfying and you, you do have a little bit of a, yes, get in there, sort of attitude towards it once you've done the, the manoeuvre. If you blast past somebody in the straight, then anybody can go flat out down the straight. You know, the... Especially there was quite DRS. Yeah. And oh, my dad hates DRS. Oh, I agree with so you. Absolutely <laughs> hates it. And there's, I've got an argument on the other side of it. We can talk about that later. But in terms of the overtake side of things uh, and the cl close wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing, that is part of what we enjoy. And... It's also, I think, shows that uh, the drivers of this current generation and also the cars are able to do it and willing to do it, but also shows you have to do it. You know, you can't sit behind someone to the next stop because that could be your strategy gone. You know, we, in at the last race, we knew very quickly that uh, we had to try and make 12 and a half seconds per stint. And if we were behind the Toyota for the stint, we lost that 12 and a half seconds advantage. And then we had to make 25 on the next one to counterbalance it. So therefore, as soon as we came to the Toyota, we had to get past them. And their job was to make sure we didn't. And uh, there was, you know, there was a little bit of a sort of kiss going through the long triple right-hander, which I'm sure you remember in 16, 17 and 18 with myself and one of the Toyotas. And it was all sort of lined up, hopefully, from my point of view, to get him out of the next one. Thankfully, it all played in very well. But... Afterwards, there is no animosity. You know, it was a good, hard race, hard, fair. And that, I think, is probably the key thing, is that the, the racing has been very aggressive, very hard, but it also has been very, very fair. Yeah. Is this is the Marco Marquez principle, isn't it? If you can get by, get by. <laughs> yeah, but Pedrosa doesn't agree with that, does he? Well, no, no, <laughs> no. I'm and the fact is, that, you know, I, I referenced that a little bit to um, Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel in Malaysia. Yeah. You know, Marquez was coming past whatever, and he knew that if he got past and beat Pedrosa in that one, Pedrosa was effectively out of the championship battle. And so he knocked one of his main competitors straight away, kicked him in the knee, and that was him down. You're saying he did that deliberately? I'm not saying he touched him deliberately, there's right. no way, but he, want, he was going to try yeah. whatever and beat Pedrosa that weekend. And then obviously with lead ends. It was interesting, though, wasn't it? I remember one year in Montreal when, when we had traction control in F1, uh, when Rubens was with Ferrari. And I can't remember what the problem was, but his, his traction control glitched. Mm -hmm. 
and he came out of the uh, you know the hairpin of Mon uh, Montreal yeah. and just <laughs> floored it as you would with traction control and was spun away down the road and he and I remember he was quite sort of shaken not in a fear sense but yeah. just in terms of Jesus, you know, we've forgotten how to lying. drive, haven't yeah. we? Have forgotten how to. And he just struck me with on Sunday, Pedroza, you know, suddenly, instantly, unknowingly, without traction control, yeah. and bang, look what happened. Yeah. You, you drive differently. Yeah. There's no question. You drive differently, and also you set the car up differently or bike up. Yeah. Because it's part of your tools. It's part of the package. It's like aerodynamics. It's part of the tools you use, and. Uh, when we have switched off our traction control systems just to verify different things, and it takes you 10 laps to get back into it. And you can do the same lap time, with or without. Mm -hmm. It's just the consistency of it. Mm -hmm. And in racing, the consistency is the key, and also in its tire management and things like that. So it's possible to do the same, but just not quite as consistent. Yeah. And uh, in that sort of side, we do rely totally on it, and that was a perfect example. Pedrosa just wound on yeah, the throttle. As he would. Boom. Yeah, yes, and gone. He was spat 10 metres up in the air or whatever yeah, it was, yeah. uh, just like Rubens or any of us. Sure. I, m myself in Sebring, actually, in the first practice, we had a problem with ours, and I got to turn 10 mm -hmm. on cold tyres, just accelerated, and there was nothing there, and sh straight into the barrier. Mm -hmm. it's, mm. it's just reliant totally on what you have got underneath you. Mm. Sure, sure. But uh, yeah, I think I don't necessarily think if you switch them all off, though, you would have a different result. Well, I think I just think I you would have a probably yeah. bigger margins yes. between yes. first and second and third, or third and fifth, for example. Yeah. I think we we all want the same thing, don't we? We being us and you, the drivers, we want great racing. I don't think we want to get too obsessed with um, the technology. I mean, it's interesting, yes, but basically, people go to a race to watch a great race, don't they? Full stop to be stirred. People huh? go, I think, people go to a race to watch humans fight it out. Yeah, absolutely. And to see that human element into it, and people doing things that they know they can't do themselves. Sure. Now, I also think that part of that is changing, where there's a technology angle into it, because the technology is quite advanced now. And I think as well, you want to see the latest and greatest. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you look at a very basic racing car and had the Formula One grid on it, it would be still exciting racing, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be as exciting racing as Formula One cars with the same Formula One grid in it. So I think people do still go to see that car and something that looks a little bit different mm -hmm. and it looks a bit, it, it's not just a standard situation. Um, so th to me, the two do combine, but without doubt, uh, I go to races to see the drivers duke it out. And I want to see them fighting, and I want to see them working for their living. And I want to see the best guy win at the end. But when we see, when we see this booing of Vettel, for example, we're not actually, hopefully, seeing a personal vendetta here. We're seeing people actually saying, come on, the racing, that there's no racing because you're winning every race. Am I not right? Yeah, but that's not his fault. No, I'm not. I think I'm not that's everybody else's fault. Well, and no, I, it's there's no way I'm suggesting I feel it's his quite, fault. I'm yeah, but I feel quite sad about that in a way because I think it's misguided. Um, it's a little bit like, to be honest, that, that when there was an element of the British public was very much against Michael when he was fighting against Damon. 
And, I, and also, I mean, I remember the Mansell fans yep. booing Santa, yeah. you know, so same and thing. There is that, it's an element of sport, yeah. and if you put yourself into that and accept all the glory, you have to accept sometimes the other sides of it as well. It's like if you, you know, read the press and they say really nice things, and one day they say nasty things, you kind of can't take one and not the other. Mm. Um, so I, I would say that it's not, I, it's not nice. No, no, and definitely not. But what they're saying is well, there's no racing going on, aren't they? Yeah, but like I say, that's down to the rest. Sure. You know, it's but uh, you see, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm maybe a, I'm just being perverse. I'm, I know, I, I know right. Vettel's winning all the time at the moment, but to me it's a true reflection of the way Formula One is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like this situation infinitely more than the Monaco Grand Prix where the, the leader is running at... Yes, GP2 yes, yes. pace. You know what you're saying is real, isn't it? I mean, it's, well, it's the, the, thing. I mean, the only laps in Monaco this year, but I mean, the attitude of the car, the body language of the car, it's like a safety car coming around the swimming pool, it was absolutely right. And pe there's nowhere in the world people want to see that. Yeah. Okay. Can I throw in one other thing, though? Would you want to reverse back 20 years when we've got all of the noise, we've got some of the sideways action, but we also have got the first two teams being four seconds a lap faster than the next teams. Four seconds. Yeah, and you know, because I, I watched an old uh, YouTube video of Spa, mm -hmm. and it had uh, the McLarens and the Ferraris, and then it had Johnny Herbert, and he's in fifth place, and he's now 3.8 seconds a lap slower, and it was like lap five. You know, that to me was nice at the time, because we didn't know anything better. But what we've got is infinitely, in my opinion, better than what we had then. Um, but right now, Sebastian Vettel and Red Bull are doing an exemplary job that if any young driver wants to look at the How To Do It book, that's a pretty good blooming book to read. And, and, part, and, part, and part of the fascination in that as well is wondering what's going to happen to destabilise them. It was the same when Michael was yeah. dominating. Now, how on earth is somebody going to come along and eventually Renault and Fernando Alonso... Hire Adrian Well, provided the answer. But, it, I mean, that to me is part of it. That's... You know, it's fun, you know you, you, you're really curious to know what's going to happen next. Yeah. How is that going to be stopped? Mm. The thing that's make, that I'm curious about is how Ferrari are going to return to the glories mm. and also mm. um, Lewis and Mercedes. Yeah. I'll tell you why. is because it seems a long time ago now since Fernando Alonso won his World Championships. And yeah. it seems also a long time ago since Lewis yeah. Hamilton yeah. won his World Championship. Yeah. And since then... There's a guy being second in the World Championship and he's basically looking like he's going to have four on the bounce. Yeah. And that is total dominance. With Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Without question, but 
I personally still think Lewis Hamilton is the fastest guy over one lap. Yeah. I would put my money on him pretty much every weekend yeah. to take pole yeah. in general circumstances. It depends if he's had an argument with his girlfriend, but otherwise, yeah. Even when he has an argument with his girlfriend, he still pulls out a lap that's better than the rest can do. He's, he's got talent, like unbounded talent in there. Yeah. And I still think Alonso, as a racing driver, from the lights going off to the checkered flag, is one of the best. But they're not able to use their undoubted talents, which I think you could argue were up with Vettel, but Vettel's got the, the right place, the right car, the right team around him, out him, which is a skill in its own right as well. And that's the, the thing that teases me for the future, is what, how are those two guys going to get themselves back into winning World Championship positions? Well, and, Fernando's, and Fernando's kind of starting to run out of time. He's into his 30s now. and he's, you know, he's, he's Well, mentally, it gets on top of you that as well. But if you think about it, I mean, Michael, you know, uh, I mean, he won in 94, 95 with Benetton, but he didn't win another until 2000 with Ferrari. So yep. he went, what was it, his fifth season at Ferrari when he finally won the championship? Well, yeah. He got increasingly desperate. I mean, if, so, he, if he hadn't done it in 2000, you wonder well, what would have happened. Yeah. Could history have been changed? Possibly. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Because it was still quite close that year, wasn't it, with Hakkinen? Yeah, 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 it was. So absolutely. Um, can I, we've had an, a huge number of questions from our readers, Alan. So um, it's important uh, to put these to you, otherwise it's a waste of time doing it. Um, and Alex Bell wants to know what you consider to be your best ever driving stint at Le Mans. Now, I know you've done a few. Does one come immediately to mind or not? Ooh, single stint. Yeah. Crikey me. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Would it have been in the rain at night or not? I think it was probably actually in the rain at night, but not in the year you're thinking. I think 98, oh. because it drizzled uh, at about one in the morning, if I remember correctly. And, uh, but it was only drizzling, and it was pretty wet through the Porsche section. And uh, it was kind of dry through Dunlop, Tetra Rouge, and by the time you got to Mulsanne, and I was able to pull quite a chunk on the rest at that point. And that was probably one of the best. Now this year was probably one of the hardest because it was on and off rain and inconsistent. In 2008, uh, then it was quite clearly heavy rain and uh, we were able to take a big time out of it, of Peugeot. But for me, yeah, probably that 98 in the drizzle. But partly because it was so early and I didn't know what the heck was going on, I was just driving. Um, but there's, you know, there's, whew. Le Mans is such a tricky one. You come out smiling out of it. Uh, after having done a stint, but if you don't win the race, then it kind of taints that, that stint situation. And you go away, as much as you go away happy with the place, you go away loathing it as well yeah, at the same yeah. time as a driver. Yeah. It's, 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 it feels spooky even listening to you talking about it, actually. I mean, drizzle at night, you know. You're coming, just to give you a bit of an impression, at night you've got a very narrow tunnel of lights. We've got very powerful lights now. Back in those days, we had candles, I think, sort of, and if, if one blew out, but it, it's, a, it's quite a narrow tunnel, so you're only really looking down. You, can't see, you can see the barriers and you can see the flag marshals, but you don't see anything beyond that, and you certainly don't see anything up, because it's dark and it's drizzling. And uh, you're kind of picking out things as you're coming, say, for example, down to the first chicane. So you pick out the building in the left-hand side, then you pick out the 200-metre board, and then you know, the 150 and the 100-metre, and then you've got, there's a little road section with dotted lines um, that's just a standard T-junction, normal traffic. 
and you pick out the dotted lines and that, then you get your breaking point from that. Now the second chicane used to be a lot harder because the breaking point was between the 200 and the 150 board. But it, so it was in a no man's land. Mm. And if you went in too deep, you had no recovery. You know, that was it, you were, you were off for the ride. And so it was a, a trickier one than the, the first chicane. And Mulsan as well, and if it was, because it tram lines then, really bad tram lines when I first went to Le Mans. And you crossed them and the car was dancing underneath you, even in the dry, but then when it was wet or greasy, then it was sort of slipping and sliding. You had to really wait to do your dime changes. You couldn't change down straight away because then you'd lock the rear wheels. And you were doing 200 plus miles an hour, 220 miles an hour actually at that point. And so you, you had to hang on. But uh, that's what makes the place pretty mischievous in its own right, but also gives it the mystique, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. That's Ask great. Derek Bell about these sort of things. He knows about 240, maybe 250 miles an hour doing it. Well, he does, actually. I do remember him saying to me once that it, the rain was so bad that he did look up to see if he was between the tops of the trees. <laughs> well, the, this year in the pre-test, um, it was so bad going between Mulsanne down to Indianapolis that uh, I think we only got it into third or fourth gear. And normally that's flat and six, doesn't matter what it is. It's just because the, the rain also hangs in the trees and that's changing as well year by year because the trees are getting taller. So therefore the spray that comes up from them doesn't actually have anywhere to go. It just goes up in this sort of vertical tunnel and then comes straight back down. So there's big sections now with quite high tree lining that uh, if it is wet, means that you get a lot of spray. And it's difficult in a closed car to see if you've got a little bit of rain or a hell of a lot of rain because when it's hitting the windscreen at 200 miles an hour, it seems like it's, you're, you're, you're diving into the, the Thames here. It's, it's, not just a, it's not easy to read it. Not, not as easy as it is in an open-top car. I'd like to see a video of that, I must say. Alan, have you ever seen any movie of, um, of Le Mans in 69 when the 917 had its first race? Well, not its first, first Le Mans. Yeah. Have you ever seen no. any movie of it's, it's the most extraordinary thing because there was some helicopter footage. Stommelen was driving the, the car and uh, was the, you know, the early 917, nine inch rims and just, you know, and no wings. And, um, and Frank Gardner said, you know, yeah, Stommelen was doing it for the fatherland. Yeah. He was leading by a long way, but the, but the, but the helicopter footage when he's going down Mulsanne, of course, no chicanes then. And the car is just going from one side of the road to the other, the whole way down. And, um, but he said afterwards, the secret was, well, it wasn't really a secret, I mean, you just hope for the best. If you were lucky, the car was on the left of the track when you got to the kink. Yeah. So then you had an easy line through the kink. But if it had wandered over to the right, you, got to, you just had to get out of it, you just had to, had to lift off. And, if, if you see it now, it's the most amazing thing. I mean, that was just, he was, foot was flat, and it was just literally wandering from one side of the road to the other. So we've got a huge amazing. downforce now. 240 miles an hour. And we, s we drive down the crown of the road, the centre of the road, yeah. the white line, basically, just so that we've got the maximum chance of yeah. adhesion. And also, I do it for another point, that if some, I do hit a puddle, I've got the maximum distance between yeah. me and the barrier to sort yeah. it out. Yeah. But I can't imagine doing it at 240 miles no. an hour with basically fuel cells strapped no. round and about you. Nine-inch rooms. In, yeah, <laughs> nine-inch rooms. <laughs> That's a bicycle, isn't it? <laughs> Crikey, me. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Okay. It's terrifying. I'm glad I'm in this era. I really am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Daniel Wortley... Workley, anyway, uh, wants to know of all the Audis, all the Audi LMP cars you've driven on, which one is your favourite at R10. this point? Yeah. The R10, the first diesel, in the guys at the end of 
its life in 2008 because that's when we had huge amount of horsepower and torque. We had 1,500 newton meters of torque at that point, and Jeez. I can't remember the horsepower figure, but it was, it was a lot. And uh, makes today's horsepower figures seem pedestrian. But also the car was a big heavy beast, the V12 engine, mm. which had quite a rearward weight distribution, which meant that you understeered a bit, and you also had to throw it into corners. You had to really manhandle it. And if you manhandled it, it sort of, you tamed it. And if you didn't, then it got the better of you. So you had to throw this thing around. And I really enjoyed that car. I enjoyed the racing with it. Uh, and just generally the principle that you had to get on top of it and show it who was boss. But I've never in my life, including everything I've done, accelerated so fast as I have done in that thing. The first time I was in Sebring drove the R10 in its first uh, revision in 2006 and I accelerated between the hairpin and to turn 10 which has got a little kink in it but I thought right let's see what this thing's got baby <laughs> <laughs> and it took off and it made a, it, the, the acceleration honestly it made a Formula 1 car feel like it had 3 gears it was unbelievable acceleration I was, I was shocked and then I came in smiling because I thought <laughs> oh, hey we've got something here <laughs> Fantastic. And then ask for more. <laughs> of course. Um, uh, Simon G would like to know uh, if you felt hard done by by being replaced at Toyota after just one year of Formula One. No, not hard done by. Frustrated. No question frustrated. You know, at the end of the day, Toyota, I did a three-year deal with them. And uh, that racing year was the final part of that three-year agreement. They decided they wanted to go in a different direction with both Mika and I. Um, I don't think the results the following year really improved very much. Um, but ultimately, that's their prerogative. The thing that probably made me feel a bit better was a couple of weeks later, after that was announced, I got a phone call from Flavio Briatori. And he said, come in because we want you to be the reserve driver and the Friday testing and everything else. And I went in and he clearly said, right, no, we've watched, we want this, this, this. You're going to do X, Y, Z. Within about an hour, we had agreed the deal. The money was right, everything was there straight away. And I was sitting with Mike Gascoigne at the time and Pat Simmons and working out how it was going to go. And I drove the car at Barcelona for the first time. And this is a 2002 car. And my first ever lap in the Renault around Barcelona was quicker than my qualifying lap in the Toyota. So Jeez. I looked at it, cranky, actually, okay, they've gone in a different direction at Toyota, but in reality, you know, the gap between the people at the front and the people that want to be at the front was huge. As ever. And as a driver, you know, you can only do so much. You're at the limit of the capability. But, you know, Toyota put me in Formula One. I was their first ever Formula One driver. We had a great relationship through sports car racing and also through Formula One and I left with a lot of friends. Didn't leave in any animosity. But I did leave with some frustration because there was times when we could have had a lot better results than what we did have. But it was their first year and you can't expect you know, people to have a swinging first year, I suppose. You're beating them now anyway. I would remind you, Mr McNish, where Toyota got your telephone number from as well. Really? Mm. For the sports car? Yeah, yeah they, they, they phoned me up one day and said, Dead's top secret, have you got Alan McNish's phone number? Yes. Oh, really? Yes, that was partly my fault. So, so top secret, it's 15 yeah. years later, now you let it out, yeah. tell you what. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, they, they, they contacted me and asked if I had your, they, someone had told them that I had your phone number, which I did. 
Well, thank you very much. So yeah, you, you, you still haven't bought me a cup of tea for that, but anyway. No, no, but I'll make you one later on. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the editor. Yeah, that's yeah, as editor, yeah, I yeah, presume exactly, that's part yeah, of the yeah. job. Or, sorry, it's the other way around, isn't it? <laughs> um, this is quite an interesting question from Gary Slevin, or it's a different kind of question. He, he's asking you, Alan, whether driving for the Toyota Formula One team was any help in understanding their psyche and the, the way they go about things when you came to fight them in sports cars? No, it wasn't. It was very, very different. Uh, the sports car team in 99, when we raced at Le Mans, was basically run under Ovi Anderson. Yeah. And uh, the technical director was Andre de Cortans, who had a very clear line on it. And it had very little Japanese involvement. Uh, then the Formula One team increasingly had a lot more structure and a lot more, I would have said, top-heavy structure to it. Uh, but now they're back down to a little sleek environment. So I'd have said that, if anything, the team from 1999 in sports cars at Le Mans and the team they have today in WEC in Le Mans is more similar than Formula One. Uh, but a lot of the people are still the same. You know, the chief designer is still there. There's a lot of the guys. Uh, John Steeks, who's the team manager, was uh, part of the sports car and Formula One stuff. So a lot of the personnel are still the same, but I wouldn't necessarily say the mentality of it. Well, in brief, what went wrong with the Toyota Formula One programme? I mean, bearing in mind the money, why didn't they do better? Very simply, in my opinion, they expected too much too early. They underestimated what it was like to be able to design a car, to develop that car, to race that car, at the same time being able to design a car alongside it. Now, they had a lot of money, they had great facilities, and they had a lot of, uh, I would have said they had a lot of potential. And they've produced some very good people. If you look at where a lot of the people from Toyota Formula One have gone to nowadays, they're actually in really good positions of strength in the in industry. Sure. But it just didn't gel. I think you need a leader. I think you've got to have one guy at the front who had Ovi Anderson at the front in the rally times and the sports car times and led into the Formula One. And I think you've got to have one strong guy that really understands and attacks you. I've had that at McLaren, Ron Dennis, Frank Williams, Patrick Head. And Ulrich at Audi. Wolfgang, you know, with us at Audi. You've got to have someone that sort of picks up the flagpole and says, right, we're going this way. And everybody follows them. And uh, they didn't necessarily have that, especially at the beginning. They had a sort of design by committee, if you like, of the whole culture of the company, which was a bit too top-heavy for motorsport, I think. I don't, you might be able to actually throw well, a line on it from your side. I'm just interesting, interested. Um, did you, was, it, was it also the fact that decision-making in any... I mean, it's always been... A, maybe it's a cliché, but it has always been said. Certainly, Certes always said it about Honda way, way back. The decision-making process in Japan is extraordinarily slow. It's, um, yes, decision-making, but also the, the time to get to the point where a decision can yeah, be made. Yeah. You know, you have meetings for meetings, and then yeah. whereas if you've got the guy on the, on the floor, and it says, right, we need to do this now, and sure. there's a Grand Prix in two weeks, so there's no questions, we make a decision today or we're not going to be there. Yeah. And uh, that culture, now I think as well a little bit the distance. You know, Japan's a long way away. Yeah. It's a completely different mindset. Yeah. You know, they've culturally, they've got a completely different way of working. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they're very, very good at certain areas. But you have to say, if you look at Japanese 
companies running Formula One teams, none of them have been very successful when they've been doing everything together. No, and I think it's the top heavy side yeah. of things yeah. where they don't have one guy that carries a flag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Alan, we're jumping about all over the place here, but all these questions have come, come from very different places. Um, Mario Carnero Neto. He's from Dumfries, Scotland, for sure. He absolutely, <laughs> definitely, you can tell, can't you? Yeah, well, yeah. Dario Franchitti, Paul De Resta, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could be closer to the truth than you <laughs> think here. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, he wants to know what your thoughts are on the WEC in the sense that it's, been, it's, it's now a, a sanctioned FIA championship. Um, do you think that's brought, uh, attracted or repelled constructors, fans and sponsors? I think that everybody wanted to fight for a world championship. The American Le Mans series in the mid-2000s was effectively a world championship because that's where everybody went. Mm -hmm. It wasn't called that. It but was it wasn't an official. It uh, wasn't official, but it was effectively the same people that's involved in WEC, but fighting for that particular title. But ultimately, drivers and teams want to fight for a world championship. Because they want to be world champions. Yes. Quite clearly, you know, it's a big title. And for it now to have that status, I think what it does is it, it basically gives everybody two bites at the cherry in a little bit of a way as well. You know, Le Mans is without doubt still the jewel in the crown. It is the key. And it still is bigger than the World Championship. However, it means that the rest of the season has got a lot more substance to it. Now, manufacturers will come through time. I don't think you can expect any championship to instantly, from one day to the next, to build up and be at a top level. It does take time for that to happen, and it is building, so I think the future is quite bright for it. But uh, from the driver's point of view, from the teams, I think it's been a very positive thing, and ultimately from sponsors as well, because they'll be able to market it. Sure. much more than they could if it was, say, a European championship or an American-based championship. But it would help enormously if it was on television more, wouldn't it? Well, that's been a big push through the course of this year. There's no question about it. And uh, now, and it's not just in the UK market as well, where you've got Eurosport doing highlights packages, but also uh, you have got motors covering it in entirety mm. in television side of things. But there has been a push to improve that. And everybody wants that to improve. You know, the fans, the teams, the sponsors, the drivers, everybody does. It is, no. it is live on motors, but people don't know about it. That's the trouble. So well, exactly. I think that's part of the, the story, is actually getting people to understand what, where they can see it, what it's about, mm. and to develop it. But that's, that's down to the championship and the people involved in it. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not lumping this onto the AC or the FIA. I mean, teams and drivers and everybody yeah. to then be proactive Joint and talk about it. For this, yes, yeah, and also Motorsport Magazine. Um, absolutely. Yeah, we'll bring yeah. you into yeah. the, into yeah, as guest not? editor, I'll tell you, there's going to be four pages dedicated to it. <laughs> only, only four? Sorry? Only four? I can only count to four. <laughs> here's, a, here's a tough one then. Um, you've got three Le Mans wins. Mm. If you had to choose between another Le Mans win and a World Championship... I'd take a World Championship now. Would you? Yeah. You yeah. No, not you never get bored with those, I can tell you, you never get bored with them. No, but you have got, you always want what you haven't had. Yeah. And I know what it's like to taste the champagne for winning Le Mans. Uh, I've only ever competed in three world championships in my time in karting, and I finished third, and I was off the front row, and 
a German got past me. He went on to win a few world championships in Formula <laughs> One, and I finished third there. Yeah. And that really that took a long time to get over. Really, that was a real kick for me because I knew I had one chance at it, mm. and I didn't get the start. And basically, that was it, done and dusted. Formula One, I had no chance of winning the world championship in 2002, and then last year. And so therefore I haven't tasted that, but I do know what uh, the rest of it is like. So at this moment in time, sitting here, I would take a world championship over a fourth Le Mans victory. Yeah. Um, ask me again at the end of the year. <laughs> we'll see. Who, who, who was second in the World Karting Championship that year? Michael. Oh, he was second. Yeah. Yeah. Andrea Gilardi won it. He won it the previous year and that year, and Michael... Was he another uh, Scott? We're talking Andrea about a German Gilardi. guy called Schumacher, by the way. Mm -hmm. No, 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 he wasn't. He was, he was actually probably one of the most talented kids of my generation in karting. He was fantastically quick. And uh, for winning the world title in 85, his dad bought him a little scooter. And he was chatting up some bird because he was a really good looking guy as well. Like stunningly good looking, fast in a car, had everything going for him, suave and sophisticated. But unfortunately, a guy mounted the curb and hit him and it broke his pelvis and he never really recovered from that. And he did, he raced up into 3000 and things, but never with the program. He never had the money and it was always just... Then his father passed there. away and that kind of knocked it from him. But I, for me, he was the most talented of our generation. And that included, you know, some pretty good guys. Well, hey, here's an idea for a feature when you're the guest editor then. Let's talk to him. Well, he's actually, he was uh, working for the Audi driving experience okay. at Monza. Great. And uh, I saw him a couple of years ago in Monza, and he hadn't changed at all. And but he's he, still good looking, isn't he? Yeah, he's still suave, sophisticated and good looking, and <laughs> you know what Italians are like, for goodness <laughs> sakes. But uh, yeah, Andrea, he was quick. That's a great story, isn't it? Anyway, he was quick. Um, Dennis Wilson wants to know... Not uh, that one. Not that one, no. <laughs> He's dead, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> sorry. No, not the one from the Beach Boys. Thank you, Damien. No, sorry. He's dead anyway. Sorry. Carry on. Um, what does he want to know? Oh, yes. He wants to know what it was like working with Mika Salo. It was very funny. <laughs> Lots of humour. God, I've worked with a few Finnish, because Mika Hakkinen was my teammate in Vauxhall Lotus. And uh, then JJ Leto later on, and with Mika Salo. And Mika, Mika's not your standard Finn. He isn't so many character traits, but definitely in terms of his sense of humour, he had a really good sense of humour. He's a straight talker. Um, it's funny, teammates in single seaters tend to always keep something in their pocket. And you could never trust everything they said. But I never felt that Mika was really doing that. I'm sure he did keep stuff in his pocket. There's no question that's nature of the beast. But I never, ever felt he was doing anything untoward. He was very clean and open with me. Didn't, didn't do anything but be a good teammate, actually. And uh, I suppose one of the best things is at the end of the year, my wife said, I'll really miss Mika. Because he was a good, fun guy to be around. And we had a heck of a lot of fun. Mm. as well as, you know, some decent dices and bits and pieces. No, he's a, he's a good guy. They're strange, these Finns, aren't they? I mean, do, do, oh, as, yes. a, as, a, as a, now as a broadcaster, a Formula One broadcaster, do you have a, you must have a view, I guess, on uh, Raikkonen and his uh, imminent departure to Ferrari? Well, he's a wee bit different again, though, I think, in 
and the standard character traits. You know, first of all, I think when Kimi came, when he left Formula One and went rallying, I think he was completely just bored. Yeah. And he needed something else to sort of spark his imagination. And then I think he, he kind of got that and he realised that rallying wasn't quite as much fun hitting trees in the middle of the night as what he expected. And when he came back, I think he's been a better driver. Yeah. I think he's had his motivation back. He's probably lost one or two tenths in pure outright speed. But he's been able to, I would have said, use his experiences very, very well. And right now, he's extremely complete. Now, going to Ferrari is probably his last chance of winning a World Championship. You know, talking about Fernando and time running out, it's the same thing with Kimi. I would say Kimi's going to have two years where he's got a crack at it. And uh, I can understand totally his decision to go there. I think he'll give Fernando a good run, but... I think Fernando is well ensconced in that team. Speaks the language, the native language, knows how the mentality works in them, has been there for a long time. Well, he speaks. Yeah, but Kimmy speaks as well, just not quite that often. Quite as often. Maybe a short interview. Yeah, but the, the thing that Ferrari liked about him the first time around was the fact that he was very non-political. He arrived, did his job, didn't complain, bitch and complain. He would say, okay, we need to improve this, this, this. Go away, come back, do the same the next week. And he was a kind of stress-free driver in a way. At the end, he wasn't quite producing it, but that was you know, basically because he was kind of bored of it all. He had probably he'd won a championship, which was what he wanted to do. That was his goal. And when he had achieved his goal, I think his motivation dropped. Mm. And uh, at the same time, Massa's motivation was increased as well. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, right yeah. now, I think it's a good decision for him. I think Lotus will miss him, but the Lotus car is a bloody good car. It's not just about Kimi Raikkonen. I think that car is a very, very good little car. And whoever steps into it next year uh, will be stepping into a race, potentially race-winning car. Because I have to say, if you know Renault from the engine department, I think they've got as good a chance as anybody of getting it totally right on the power source side of things. And you get the impression that if the money and everything else had been right and the guarantees, fundamentally, that's where he would have preferred to stay. Well, I, I think, because I, I mean, I think he's been happier as a Lotus driver than at any stage of yes, his F1 career. I probably agree with that. He's he smiled a lot more and he's been a lot more relaxed with everything. He, you know, he, he's a different animal. He's of the new generation, but he really doesn't like to do PR. He, he, not that he doesn't do, he does it badly or anything. He does it very well. I understand when he is at an event. He's extremely polite and personable and everything else, but it's not really his bag and uh, he just likes to drive racing cars and they gave him that opportunity and they gave him the opportunity when other people didn't and I think there's an element of you know feeling towards the team but you've known them when they were in the previous guys at Renault or in Benetton before that and they're a very homely little team Mm. you know they are and Eric Boulier I think has stepped in and he's managed the situation very very well I think he's been quite a big positive addition to that and he's quite a homely sort of guy as well he's a big character and right. physical size but you know you could see him especially the way that he's worked with Grosjean and the difficulties that Roma had last year and you know he stood by him put his arm around him gave him a cuddle told him it'll be all right but you need to knuckle down son but it'll be okay and uh, I think his man management has been pretty good I would have said mm. and probably kept people longer than they would have done normally mm. Talking of motivation, I mean, you're potentially three races away from 
winning a world championship. You've, you've won. Easy, easy. Yeah. That's a big three races, though. Yeah, it's a big three races. 78 points. Yeah, okay. Uh, and you've won Le Mans three times. So where is McNish's motivation coming from in the future, especially that you have a burgeoning career as a broadcaster? <laughs> uh, well, you do. My, yeah, but I, I don't... I, I, I'm very basic in my outlook because I've been burnt by looking too far ahead before. I go race by race in basic principle. So I, I obviously I, you have general thoughts about the future. But in terms of the championship, I look at towards our next race in Fuji. And if we win that, we'll have more points to the championship. If we're second, then we'll have less points depending on who wins ultimately. And then you go to China and then you go to Bahrain. And then the only time the points balance matters is in Bahrain. Sure. At the end of it, when there's no more points available to race for, that is when the championship's totted up and you know who wins and who doesn't. And until then, it's all speculation to a great extent. And so therefore, I don't necessarily think too much of that. The motivation for me though, is always racing and winning. I don't have much motivation just to be part of something. It's to win, and uh, there's an element of that's as well when there's some opportunities at the end of 2003 to stay in Formula One or go to Audi and to Le Mans, then to me it's better to be involved in something where you can fight to win as opposed to be involved Absolutely. in something where you can say, woohoo, we're going to be 15th on the grid today, and if we have a great race, we could finish 12th. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't tick my box at no, all. No, absolutely. Never has done. It didn't when I was starting Carton when I was 11 years old. So why should that change? And that's the big thing for me. So it's about <coughs> the, the ability to go and race to win. Now, without question, there will be a day, because I'm 43 years old now. I'll be 44 at the end of the year. There'll be a day when all of the travelling and all of the other bits and pieces that goes on, the testing and the hard work, as well as the young guys coming up that only get faster and, you know, naturally you don't get much faster after <laughs> a certain point. Um, all that thing just starts to aggravate, but it'll be the redu reduction, I would have said, in the future of being able to win races that probably will demotivate as opposed to anything else. Right now, I don't think I've got much problem with motivation. Also, where do you go after Audi? I mean, Audi is arguably the best racing team in the world. In I mean, you were asking a question earlier on about uh, other teams. Mm. I uh, look. But you didn't answer it, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, Did like, you expect me to? Well, I, well, no, I didn't expect you to, but you never know, do you? You never know. I mean, uh, so that's another no, is it? I've been with Audi <laughs> 10 years, 11 years now. And uh, they, it's been a very, very successful part of my it career. Sure has. Without any questions whatsoever. And it came around in the bizarrest of ways, because without Porsche pulling out of motorsport, at the top level, then I would never have signed for Audi. And I would never have signed for Toyota, so it never have taken me to Formula One, it would never have taken me to Audi without the decision of Dr. Wiedeking at the end of 1998. So it was kind of a bit of a bizarre way that it's all turned around to date. Um, the, the post, if you say professional racing, the one thing I would like to do but which is sort of professional, because you'd have to put the effort into it, is I'd like to do Dakar. Yeah. I'd really like to do that. Yeah. I'd like to do Baja before it stops. Mm. It will do at some point. But I'd like to do Dakar. Yeah. I'd go in the Volkswagen Touareg in the, the Moroccan <laughs> desert in <laughs> 2005, 
and you, it's just like that R10, you have to grab a hold of this thing, it's got loads of power and torque and just throw yeah, it around yeah, and it was brilliant. brilliant fun. I got out thinking, crikey, me, like, oh, it's brilliant. And it gave me a taste of it, but I didn't like the sand too much because it was uh, got in your blooming shoes and everything else and it was in your eyes. But um, as a general principle, I'd love to yeah. have a crack at that at some point. Yeah. Perhaps we should ask Simon Aaron whether Porsche has asked him for your mobile telephone number. No, no, no not so far. No, I didn't give it to Audi either. I don't know where he got. I don't know where, don't know where, where they got it from. Yeah, but you, you'll now ask for a commission or something off this. I'm sure. I'm, I'm, wait, I'm waiting until you retire. I'll just be five percent. Send me through yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a small invoice. Yeah. A small invoice. Oh, good, good. I like small invoices. They're okay. Actually, we're, small invoices. We're going to be in big trouble with Audi if we bang on about Porsche. Yeah. You know, it's are funny, you but you say that. A lot of the people in generally in Audi, Wolfgang Ulrich, for example, started their careers at Porsche. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that came through it. And when we were racing against them in the American Le Mans series and the LMP2, LMP1 battle, some of it was really aggressive on track. You know, you talk about sort of bodywork rubbing and things. It was, you know, I remember Roman Dumas and I having a pretty much a stand-up argument after one of the races in St. Petersburg. But as soon as the race finished, the first people to come and congratulate us or us to them was the Porsche and Audi guys. Because mm. there was that element of respect and that's still there today. There is an element of respect. They know they are going to have to work very hard to beat us at Audi and also we know we're going to have to work very hard to beat them. It was a fantastic series at that time. I mean, oh, as, yeah. as a racing series, I mean, it was, it was just wonderful to watch. It was superb to yeah, be involved really in was. as well. It's, very, it's a very relaxed environment. It was, uh, I think as a, from a driver's point of view, it's not that sort of political side that European racing, and certainly top flight European racing can be. Yeah. It was really open, very relaxed, no stress, no strains. You had, and one good thing was, which I do think they have to involve in more motorsport categories, certainly of international level, is they had one group of people, stewards, main marshals, medical and everything, going to all of the all races. All the races, yeah. Because then you built up relationships with them sure. and you knew where you stood all the time. Sure. And uh, I have to say, I really enjoyed the race and I enjoyed the off-track stuff. Mm. And uh, it was probably some of the best career races and years of my life mm. was racing in the LMS. Sadly, we're running out of time. Could stay here all day. He's a brilliant bloke, isn't he? Thank you very much, Alan. Fantastic. Damien, what are, you, um, what are your expectations of this new guest editor of ours? Well, I'm, I'm just looking to sit back for the month and see, how, see what happens, basically. No, for a month? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell you that bit, did I? You, yeah. you, 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 can't, you can't do Fuji, sorry. You're otherwise engaged. I'm not sure the editorial budget will stretch to Fuji, now. Could you swap? Could we do a job swap situation? Can you imagine that? Yeah, horrendous. I wouldn't be able to get in the thing, never I mind I personally cannot wait to see Damien Smith drive that Audi at Fuji. <laughs> Uh, the straight bit's okay, it's only the twiddly bit's back. Yeah. They'll have to cut the roof off to get me in. So, uh, um, no, but in the, the January dated issue, uh, Alan's very kindly agreed to be guest editor. So there's going to be um, uh, a couple of stories in there, one of which we did uh, in Austin. Basically, the, the Monday after Austin, he uh, agreed 
bizarrely actually to spend a day and a half with a journalist in a car um, we went on a road trip which was actually a lot of fun and um, we went to some interesting places found a German town in the middle of Texas which was good fun went to the Alamo in San Antonio so we had, we had quite a, um, a, a good view of Texas how did he um, drive right yeah, he was all right. How well, can I just tell you, I sat passenger for most of it, and I uh, was grooming Damien for the Fuji race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. He's certainly good in fuel economy. Didn't necessarily use all of the power no. in the RS5, but fuel economy is very good. Yeah, I've got, I've got a few pounds to lose in the next uh, two weeks as well, so, uh, yeah, crash diet. So that's one of the, the key features of the issue uh, we're putting together, and um, uh, there'll be some other stuff in there as well, which will be uh, hopefully good fun to read, so don't miss that one. And remember, what we've learned in the past two weeks, of course, is that you must never, ever, ever accept a lift from a racing driver on a street corner at night. <laughs> you, you will bear that in mind, I won't shall you? definitely bear that in mind. Thank you very much. Good. Yes, And okay. thank you very much for having me. It's always a lot of fun to sort of shoot the breeze with you guys. You know your motorsport better than me, that's for sure. He knows his dates, Mr. Aaron. I got it wrong. It's, fri it's frightening, I got wrong. <laughs> he knows the telephone numbers. It's still the same <laughs> telephone number as well. If you'd like to speak to Mr. Manish, it's 07. So anyway, <laughs> thank you I very, was, very I much. I said. <laughs> thank you, everybody, and I hope you've enjoyed today as much as we have. And we'll see you next time on the uh, next Motorsport Magazine podcast, which will probably be in, what, three, four weeks' time. And we'll have another great guest for you. Okay, bye-bye, everybody. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.